Let's uh, pray together as we jump into this passage of Scripture together. Let's pray one more time for the Lord to bless us here as we study His Word. Well, Heavenly Father, we come before You now, and we're so grateful for Your Son, Jesus, who is now being proclaimed to be the mediator of a better covenant, enacted on better promises. And so help us to see, Lord, the supremacy of His ministry. We pray that Jesus would be exalted and gloriously displayed before us as we look at what Scripture says about our great high priest. We pray for your help now. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, both to speak your word and to hear your word. And Lord, above all, help us to obey your word. As James says, help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers, so that we do not become self-deluded. We pray your help now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we are looking at this passage that declares that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, the mediator of a better covenant. And really what we're looking at is the limitless ministry of Jesus, the limitless ministry of Jesus. And so we're just going, verse 4, it's not the best place to break the action in the book of Hebrews here in this section, but it's just too rich, too much, and as far as our church goes, we will always be devoted to the exegetical exposition of the Word of God. I feel like I need to say that uh, just because there's a lot of visitors today, and I just want to emphasize the bedrock of our church is that we go expositionally through the Word of God verse by verse so that we don't miss any of the treasure that is here for us. <laughs> I don't know how pastors do these uh, topical messages where they just you know, briefly scan over the Bible. It's just not in my DNA. Sorry. So that means you got to go deep with me. Sorry, I'm taking you with me. Uh, but that's where we're going to go as we continue to go through the book of Hebrews. It's just a marvelous, marvelous thing. I had a really hard time last night shutting off my, uh, my light, shutting off my desk light, um, and closing my books. I'll be really honest with you. I was, um, my eyes were weary. My body was tired, but my brain was really, really active <laughs> because I was trying so desperately to connect as many dots as I could with this miserable, wretched body of mine <laughs> that is constantly failing me. <laughs> but um, there is so much here. Let me back us up to verse 1. Go back up to verse 1 because we're still locked in to this phrase that he said in verse 1. This is a big phrase because it doesn't really come along very often in the Bible where the author tells you the main point is this, <laughs> which I thought was really good. It's uh, good for, it, it makes for easy preaching, right? Because he's telling you, look, this is the gist of the issue. This is the essence of what we're trying to present to you here. The main point is, and then he goes in to what I perceive to be in verse 1 and 2, sort of a summary of what is coming. As we went all the way from chapter 5 to chapter 7, we were looking at the priesthood of Jesus and all the accomplishments of Jesus as a priest, Melchizedekian priesthood, and everything that that, mean, that, that, that meant. And then chapter 8 will go all the way to chapter 10 as far as context. So the thought of the author is going to shift from 5 to 7 and now from 8 
to 10. That's how long and how sustained his next main central thought is going to be. And so I think verses 1 and 2 really uh, serve kind of like an outline for the next two chapters. And remember what it said. The main point is this, that, what, uh, that in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Now those themes, verse 1, verse 2, those ideas that you find in those two verses are going to be repeated over and over and over again, each time being expanded, expanded, expanded. But with a Christocentric, or what we could call a uh, concentric uh, pattern, meaning it will go in and out of Christ, in and out of Christ, every circle getting wider and getting richer, but always staying grounded in Christ and His work as our priest and our mediator and our sacrifice. Those are really the themes, and that's the way the author is going to unfold the riches that are going on here. Now, what he's going to present to us here in this section, verses 4 to verse 6, is a contrast between Jesus and the old priests who were limited by the things concerning the Old Testament, whereas Jesus really has a limitless priesthood. He has a limitless ministry. And the very first thing that I want to point out to you is that Jesus, unlike the old priests, was not limited by earth, by earth. And the reason I, I chose the word earth is there in verse 4. Now, if he were on earth. And remember, the reason why that's important in the book of Hebrews is because for the author of Hebrews, he constantly has heaven and earth, heaven and earth in his purview. He's always thinking of this heaven-earth dualism, going in and out, transcending from heaven to earth and heaven down back, or from earth to heaven and heaven back down to earth. You know what I mean? He's always going back and forth because this is the nature of what Christ has done. He has fulfilled what was depicted on earth, but he has done it in the heavens, which is really, truly remarkable for us. Unlike the Old Testament priests who were limited by several things, they were limited, if you turn with me to Hebrews 7, just go back a chapter, verse 26 and 27, they're limited by their own sin, they're limited by their own mortality, but we know that for Jesus, Jesus is sinless. He has no sin. Therefore, he has no need to make a sacrifice for his own sin. And his sacrificial offering or his ministry as a priest never ends because Jesus is not a mortal man. Jesus possesses an indestructible life, as he said earlier on. And he's ministering not on earth, but in heaven. Look at verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because he did, he, because this he did once for all when he offered up 
himself. He was the offering because he was sinless. And he did it once for all, meaning he did it in a way that it was a one-time offering, did not need daily to do it. Jesus wasn't going up on the cross every day doing this. He did it once for all, meaning once for all time. It was an irrepeatable act. In other words, when it says once for all, that Greek word literally means it's a one Greek word, not three words, but one Greek word. And remember what it meant. It meant it was, a, it was a once for all thing that cannot be repeated. That's what the word means. Something that it does one time without the need to repeat ever again. That's what Jesus did. It was once for all sacrifice. It was settled. It was a doing away. Think of that. As you go back in your mind to redemptive history and you think of all the sacrificial offerings that were done for millennia of time. For millennia of time you have priests offering up sacrifices at the altar, at the tabernacle, at the temple, and then Jesus comes and ends it all. He ends it all. And remember what we said about the temple and about the writing of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is probably written around 68 A.D. The reason the writing, uh, the timing of the writing of Hebrews is so crucial is because God is going to give a historical event that is going to cement everything that the book of Hebrews has been talking about. And that, and that historical event is the destruction of the temple at 70 AD. A couple years after Hebrews was written and read by its recipients, God brought in judgment in Israel so that the temple was destroyed. Even if you go go to Israel now, what do you see? You see reconstructed walls, and they don't often go all the way up. And there is no temple there, folks. As a matter of fact, there's a pagan shrine there called the Al-Aqsa Mosque and uh, the Dome of the Rock. So God emphatically ended the sacrificial system. Why? Because he provided the once-for-all sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. The reason why is if you're still there in chapter 7, is because in chapter 7, we are told in verse 11 that the Levitical priesthood did not provide perfection. Don't we like that word? I do. I like perfect. I'm something of a perfectionist, and I'm something of a, what do they call that when you kind of obsessive compulsive type of person? I'm kind of like that. Um, if, you come to, if, if you look at my desk where I study, everything's got to be nice and lined up and filed. If a book is out of whack, I've got to line it up. I just like, I can't study. If I see stuff all messed up, I've got to line it all up. You know, I don't know if that makes me weird, whatever. I get the job done, right? <laughs> so if that's what I've got to do, that's what I've got to do. But we love the word perfection because it speaks of completeness. It speaks, it speaks of bringing something to an ideal state. It bringing something to a flawless condition. And that is exactly what the Old Testament priests could not do. They could not bring things to their ideal, flawless, perfected, completed condition. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 19 says the same thing about the law, referring to the Old Covenant. It says the law made nothing perfect. Nothing. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. There's There's that all crucial word for the book of Hebrews, that word better makes Bible study easy when you have these triggers to help you to latch on to them. Just go throughout your Bible. You write in your Bible. I don't write in mine. I consider it near sacrilegious. So, But anyway, I won't judge you. But if you write in your Bible, right, circle the word in the book of Hebrews better, 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 better. And what you find is that it's all over the book of Hebrews. 
the book of Hebrews is the technology industry's dream. <laughs> Everything is always getting better, <laughs> right? Isn't that what tech, the technology, uh, the, 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 the uh, industry of technology feeds, feeds on, basically? The better cell phone, the better tablet, the better computer, better RAM, better memory, better this, better that, better display. I mean, how much better can it get? You know, anyway, um, it gets a lot better in the book of Hebrews because Jesus brings in perfection. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28, and it begins with him. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak. That's not better. That's not perfection, right? But the word of the oath, talking about Melchizedek, and we, we looked at that, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. In other words, Jesus reached his goal. What is his goal? His goal is to be exalted above the heavens. His goal was to be given a throne and dominion and power and authority. After all, this vision of an enthroned priest, where does it come from? Well, it comes from passages like Zechariah chapter 6. Verse 13, where you see the, unite, the uniting of the priesthood and the kingdom in one office. Also, Daniel chapter 7, and the vision of the Son of Man being enthroned and being given a kingdom and given a throne and glory and honor. All the nations are meant to serve Him. Meant to serve Him. Now, I look around this room, and it's not hard for me to know that there are a lot of nations represented in this room. A lot of a lot of ethnos, a lot of nationalities, a lot of races, and we are all here because of Daniel chapter 7. We are all here because of Zechariah chapter 6. We are all here because of the perfection of the Son of God who is gathering to himself people, as John says in John chapter 5, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people group are all streaming in to Jesus Christ so that he can create a new human race, a new humanity in Jesus Christ comprised of every type of person under the sun. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, great, small, skinny, fat, right? Black, white, tall, short, right? Really smart people, not so smart people. Loving people, cold people. <laughs> I mean, just look at the body of Christ. We are a diverse group. We are as diverse as it gets. Uh, let me just say that um, this came home to me when I, many, many years ago, when I was uh, really good friends with a, um, a former uh, L.A. sheriff. And I thought, we were having really good fellowship one Sunday morning. This is, oh, about 15 years ago now, maybe longer. And I thought, isn't this something? You know, five years prior to this, w me and this gentleman would have absolutely nothing to do with each other. I mean, we could not be polar opposites. I mean, that gets into my testimony a little bit. But let me tell you, I would have nothing to do with an L.A. sheriff five years prior to that. And here we are, kindred spirits brothers in Christ with so much in common that it just transcends everything that the world says that a guy like me and a guy like him should have in common. And that's what Jesus does. 
when he unites a people through his sacrifice, through his priesthood, through his offering, through the cross. That's what the cross is doing. It is creating a new man in Christ. Let me show you this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians. Actually, Ephesians chapter 2, excuse me. Ephesians chapter 2, which refers to the, you think that black and white is a hot button issue? There has never been a greater racial divide on the face of the earth and in the history of the human race as the division between Jew and Gentile. And look at what God does. Verse 13, Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off, Gentiles, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who makes both groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the hostility, in other words, between Jew and Gentile which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that, uh, so that in himself he might make two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. He, rele- he, he takes away enmity between men and enmity between God. Peace with one another and peace with God. That is what the blood of Jesus has done. That is what the cross has done. This is what the Old Testament priests could not achieve. They could not break down the barriers of Israel. They could not break down the borders of Israel. They could not break down the national boundaries of the nation of Israel to let the nations stream in to Jerusalem. They couldn't do it. But Jesus did that once and for all when he offered himself on the tree. When he was nailed on the cross, he says in John chapter 12, he would draw all to himself. And that is referring to peoples, types of peoples, types of groups. Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 through 11. Jesus is not limited by the earthly offerings of the old priesthood. Why? Because he himself has been exalted. He has been lifted up, lifted on high. And as a result, he has brought salvation to all the people groups of the world. All the people groups of the world. Now go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Because he says there, If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Why? Well, in other words, if Jesus was offering his sacrifice on earth like the Old Testament priest, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Why? Two reasons. Number one, we already have priests who do that. Number two, remember chapter 7, Jesus doesn't qualify as an old covenant priest because, as he says, he is not from the tribe of Levi. He is from the tribe of Judah. So he doesn't even qualify to fulfill the earthly priesthood. That is why his priesthood is heavenly. Now, 
Let's move on from that to the fact that Jesus, unlike the old priests, is not limited by the types and shadows. Look at verse 5. Those Old Testament priests serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he, when, when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Remarkable. Just, just remarkable what is being said uh, right here. But in using Psalm, or Exodus 25 rather, excuse me, by, this is what that Old Testament quote is referring to. Exodus 25 verse 40. That is where God warned Moses, telling Moses, Moses, be sure that when you erect my tabernacle, my tent, Make sure that you do it exactly as I've shown you, the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Oh, I mean, can you imagine being Moses on the mountain? And God is showing you the, the, the paradigm, the heavenly paradigm, which was not fully disclosed to him there, but is given a pattern nonetheless. He has to obey that pattern, even though he doesn't fully comprehend its redemptive historical implications. He doesn't fully understand the redemptive historical implications of the tabernacle, the fullness of it, the fullness of the reality that he is about to erect when he pitches that tent. I love it. Such a simple earthly symbol. Look, the tabernacle is not this elaborate construction. It, it, it didn't demand, you know, cranes and pulleys and, you know, you, you go around Frisco and you just, in North Texas, you see cranes everywhere, you know, uh, industry. We, the tabernacle was a tent. It doesn't need a crane, right? It just needs some dedicated priests, some hard work, some poles. I think the, the, the height of the wall was something like 18 feet or 15 feet, something like that. And, and it doesn't take a whole lot of manpower to get it done. It is a simple structure, a very primitive structure through which God would make the priests act out redemption. They would act it out. Every time they offered something, they would be acting out in these cop and these shadows, these types. They would be acting out the very reality of Jesus Christ. As Gerhardus Voss says in his book on the Old Testament, he says that Literally, when they, did, when they did and performed their ceremonies, it says here that the, the reality, the heavenly reality, was hovering over the people of God. And I would go a little bit further than that. Jesus was hovering over the people of God in the Old Testament when they did their ceremonies, when they performed their sacrifices, when they gave their offerings, their meal offering, their sin offering, their, when they, they washed in the laver. All of those acts and rituals and ceremonies, what was it? It was preparing us for the heavenly reality to which it corresponded. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, because doesn't the Apostle Paul say as much? Doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us as much? Even though he is uh, writing for a different purpose to a different group of people, yet he is lockstep with the author of Hebrews here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 you ever wonder why when you come to church, nobody asks you, hey, um, did you make a fire today? Did you pick up sticks today? Right? Uh, you didn't entertain yourself today, did you, with any television or social media, did you? 
And no one is waiting to stone you for turning on your stove this morning. Why? Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. That's referring to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Or in respect to festivals, that's speaking of the ceremonies of the Old Testament, like uh, the, feast, the, the, the different feasts that they do, Feast of Booth, Feast of uh, Lights, uh, the Passover meal, all of those things. Or, watch this, or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why? Because that refers to the Old Testament calendar. So all those things, the dietary principles, the, uh, the ceremonies, the feasts of Israel, or the calendar of Israel, none of those things are something that we are to judge each other by. Why? He says, he's, he says here, verse 17, these things are a mere shadow. Same word as Hebrews. A mere shadow. And he says, that is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The essence of all of these things is Christ. He is, in other words, the fulfillment of it. Philip Hughes, in his spectacular commentary on the book of Hebrews, it's classic, and there's a reason why it's a classic. It's very, very good. But uh, Philip Hughes says in his commentary, he says, from the very beginning, the gaze of the believer has been fixed not on the earthly shadow, but on the heavenly reality. For this life is the time of pilgrimage, not rest. This present world, prior to the renewal of all things, is the realm of all that is transitory, very important here, and is thus no fit sphere for him who is our high priest forever. Do you hear what he said? The reason why Jesus is not on earth carrying out his priestly duties, the reason why he did it in heaven is because what was on earth was transitory. It was temporal, it was transitional, and it was fading away. It was never meant to be permanent, but the work of Jesus is permanent. And so therefore, he cannot occupy and officiate the position of an earthly priest because he would be using transitory tools and a transitory tent and a transitory holy place to do so, which is a total contradiction to what Jesus has done. He is not, he is not doing something that is temporal. What Jesus did is eternal. It is everlasting, so he needs an eternal sanctuary. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2. Right? He went, he went through the heavens, the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, in the heavens. Watch this. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man, not man. Now, Turn to chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 11, because there he repeats this and really, really brings it home when he says, but when Christ appeared, this is Hebrews 9, 11, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, here it is, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, wow. So the tent, the, the temple, the tabernacle, everything on this creation is not 
suitable for the perfected eternal Son of God. It, it cannot adequately harness what Jesus has done. Only the heavenly tabernacle can receive His eternal redemptive blood, if you would. His eternal redemptive sacrifice. It is not a match for Him to work on the earthly tabernacle. So now, knowing that, knowing that what was on earth was just the pattern, it was just transient, and the old priests were limited by the transient, they were limited by the earthly, they were limited by the pattern that was given to Moses on the mountain, now we come to see that they were limited by the old covenant ministry itself. But Jesus is not limited by the old covenant ministry. That's my third thing. He's not limited by earth. He is not limited by types and shadows. And he is not limited by old covenant ministry. Look, at, uh, look back at verse 6. He says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Boy, I tell you what, this is nuclear strength for your theology right here. Spend a day, spend a week. I dare you. Do I got to dare you? I dare you. Spend a week and just extrapolate verse 6. Just go into verse 6. Make sure you understand it every word, every single, everything that it says, every phrase. Understand what is being said here, but because Folks, this is the soul of the gospel right here that we're looking at in verse 6. He has become the mediator of a better covenant with better promises. It really is the difference between law and gospel. It is, be, it is the difference between what the law promised inherently and what the gospel promises inherently. And that's what's being talked about right here. He has a better ministry. Why? Why does he have a better ministry? Because his is in heaven. He is the mediator of a better covenant. Why is the covenant better? Well, there's so many reasons why it is better. But first, let me try to expound on this issue of covenant. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? It's all over the Bible. I don't think you can understand the Bible without understanding covenant covenant theology. Maybe not covenant theology proper in terms of a school of thought, though I would say, yeah, that too. But I would say you need to understand what a covenant is, what God is doing when a covenant is ratified. When a covenant is ratified, if I can just bring it down to one word, one word that describes covenant. Okay, two words that describes covenant. I would say it is a sacred bond. A sacred bond, uh, an agreement. It is, a, it is the bringing together of two parties in an inextricable relationship to one another. And what God did in the Old Covenant is that He bound Himself to a nation, Israel. He bound Himself in covenant relationship with the people of God under the Old Testament, but now we're being told that the New Covenant is even better. Why is the New Covenant better? Well, there's a myriad of reasons to, 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 uh, to know why is the, old, the New Covenant better than the Old. Well, there's a ton of reasons why. For example, we can say that the reason why it is better is because 
It, it has a better mediator. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, we are told of the old covenant mediator, namely Moses, and the fact that the old covenant was ordained by angels. So you have men and angels ordaining the old covenant, whereas the new covenant is ordained, it is ratified by the Son of God. He is the mediator. He is the mediator. It's, it's better blood because it's no longer the blood of animals or brute beasts. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. So it makes me pause and think about what Jesus said in Luke chapter 22 when he really captures the weight of the new covenant in these words. Jesus says, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. Another way to define a covenant is that a covenant is a sacred bond sealed with blood. That's what an old covenant is. And covenants really go beyond biblical history to ancient Near Eastern history. Ratifying a covenant was not something exclusive to the Bible or to the people of the Bible. People all over the ancient Near Eastern hemisphere, they all, all of them, understood what a covenant meant and what it looked like and how it was performed and how it was ratified and how it was often a bond that was sealed in blood. Going all the way back to Abraham when God does what? He separates, he splits animals, lays them in half, and he, he passes through the split, cut-up beasts and as a symbol that he himself ratified it by his own presence and that man, because he had put Abraham to sleep, man was just a beneficiary of what God was doing. And what God is saying is, look, if this covenant doesn't come to pass, like those animals that have been split apart, cut asunder, let it happen to me. And in a marvelous gospel way, it did happen to the Son of God. In order to make good on the covenant promises that were made to Abraham, God had to shed the blood of his own son in order that the descendants of Abraham would be multiplied beyond our wildest dreams. Let me just give you a small token of what I mean by that. I've mentioned this many times because right now, according to Christian sociologists like David Wells and others, what they're saying is that right now, today, what time is it? It is 3.40. Some of you are like, yeah, don't remind me. It is three, or almost 3.40 on a Sunday, Lord's Day, here at Heritage Grace Community Church. And in America, churches have already met earlier than we have, but, uh, but most churches will meet on this day to worship. And isn't it marvelous to know, and almost eye-opening, maybe surprising to many of us, that right now there are more churches and more people worshiping in China than in the United States of America fathom that, what God is doing on planet earth. He doesn't need America. <laughs> God is sovereign, my dear friends. He doesn't need prideful, comfortable, convenient, you know, Americans. If we will not lay down our life for the gospel, he will go to the Chinese. I have a friend who trains uh, people for Muslim ministry, 
And I asked him, why are you going to Brazil to train missionaries for Muslim ministry? And his answer was pretty frank. He said, Americans won't die. So I go to the, those in Brazil. They speak Portuguese. It's also a gateway language into the Muslim world. And they're ready to die. <laughs> that simple. And he has, in fact, launched uh, hundreds of missionaries who buy a one-way plane ticket to a closed Muslim nation and lay down their life for the gospel. God is doing something incredible on planet Earth. Don't we ever, ever, don't, don't ever think that, that the kingdom of God begins and ends at the walls of our church or your home, or your social media network. Oh, God is bursting down the, the doors of the nations all around the globe. I just read a report recently that Christianity is exploding in Iran. That the youth are coming to Christ. It's amazing. God is gathering to himself a people group, a new humanity, a new human race in Jesus Christ through his blood, through his cross, through his offering. And you know what? He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high as a sovereign king of the universe who is creating a new humanity right beneath our nose. He doesn't need our help, folks. We get to, we get to be part of the plan. <laughs> We get to be part of this glorious thing that one day will be manifested for all the world to see. For example, let me take you to these better promises. The better promises. The old covenant promises were inferior. Why? Because even something like the land promise of the Old Testament, which was never fully, totally realized, is much better under the new covenant. So, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 20, 22. We have not come to Mount Sinai. Forget about the desert in Sinai. This is much better, baby. We're going beyond Sinai. And I would say we're going beyond Jerusalem. Look at what he says. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. In other words, the inheritance that we are now concerned with is the heavenly Jerusalem that has no boundaries, folks, because it is essentially synonymous with heaven. Just read Revelation chapter 21. The new Jerusalem is where? The new heaven and the new earth, where dwells righteousness, no limits, no geographical boundaries, no Gaza Strip to threaten the people of God. The new Jerusalem will be all-encompassing. God's dominion and the, 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 the stretch of His sovereignty and rule will have no end, will have no border. And I think that the people of God knew this and understood this, but we're talking about eschatology on a grand national type scale and on an eschatological and cosmic scale. But let me just, to understand the word there in verse 6, enacted on better promises. Let's just look. Go no further. If you want an example of what is better, go no further today than your own pew. Go no further today than your heart. 
If you are a believer and if you are in the new covenant, look at verse 10 of chapter 8. This is the better promises embedded in the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We're not waiting for this to happen. This happened when Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant is over. The new covenant, superior, supreme, in every way, has come. And that's what we're in now. We're in this glorious new covenant experience of Jesus Christ and what he is doing in his people, the people of God. So let me end with just a couple of Old Testament passages. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 11, for example. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. Because this is, this is embedded in all the promises of a coming new covenant. Where Ezekiel says, I could just read it to you, verse 19. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. 19. I will, give them a, I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit in them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. What for? That they may walk in my statutes, keep my ordinances, that they, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. Does sound familiar? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. That they, he will, I, we will be his people, he will be our God. And now I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 6 through 27. Another early reference to the new covenant. And again, again, showing the better promises of the new covenant and how it has everything to do with the internal, with the spiritual, with changing the heart. It's glorious. For I will set my eyes on them for good. That is that is good. <laughs> That's real good right there. When God says, I'm going to set my eyes on them for good, that's a good thing. And he says, and I will bring them again to this land. And what I'm saying is that the land is typological of new heaven, new earth language. And he says, God has, excuse me, he says here, I will build them up and not overthrow them. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give to them a heart to know me. Isn't that remarkable? For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Same exact context. New covenant. New covenant. And truly, through our mediator and high priest, Jesus, his work of atonement, God has set his eyes upon us to do us infinite good. Infinite good. This is why the promises are so much better. It is the promise of a new life, folks. It is the promise of a new heart, of a new mind, and ultimately of a new heaven and of a new earth where righteousness dwells. It is the promise of God to dwell in our midst. That is the greatest good that God could ever do for anyone in this church. It's not to take away your disease. It is not to give you a better job. 
It is not to improve your circumstances around you. It's not to increase your happiness. It is not to give you more material possessions. That is not the greatest good. The greatest good that God can give us is that he himself has covenanted to dwell among us. That's the greatest good of all. For the believer, our future is magnificent beyond our wildest dreams. And so we should live like people, like the Apostle Paul, like, a, like, like as F.F. Bruce would say, like the apostle of the heart set free, set free, unshackled by the limitations of this world, unshackled by the weak, impotent pleasures of this life, unshackled by the slavery of lust and pride and all the sensuality of this world so that we set our eyes on a better country, a better life. Don't we want a better country? I mean, we got elections coming and, you know, Donald Trump is talking about how he's going to, you know, just beat everybody up and make this a great nation, <laughs> right? Millions of dollars are going to be spent by individuals who want to just bloviate about how great they are and how great they're going to make our country. Well, God doesn't need to do that because he's given us a promise that the country that we are seeking is going to be better, it is going to be great, and it will have no end. No end. I better end or I'm about to have no end. I'll go for another 20 minutes. Let's pray, and uh, we will close with worship. Father, Lord, it's very simple for us. The Bible says that if the word is not mixed with faith, it will not profit us. And so, Lord, we can hear of your, of your new covenant dealings with us. We can see the glorious things that are presented to us in the gospel. But if we do not mingle that with faith, then it will not profit us. Lord, would you please impart faith today? Please, Lord, we beg of you, open the eyes of the blind Save in our midst. Bring people to the place where they close with Christ, where they finish it, where they have peace with God through repentance and faith. Oh God, if there be any among us today who are not in the new covenant, would you please reveal your goodness to them now? Make them your child Turn their heart, take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, a heart that is pliable and responsive and sensitive to your touch. We pray that now in Jesus' name, amen.